This summer, friends, we have been working through the life of King David of Israel, beloved King David, the man after God's own heart. And uh, the last couple weeks, we kind of dove in deep to that classic story of David and Goliath, and hopefully um, saw some new things in the Word of God. One amazing thing is that when everybody else saw a nine-foot giant, David alone, in the Bible's account, is the character who sees beyond the giant and has the perspective to see how great God is and how big God is. And when the battle actually goes down, it's remarkable that David, the man after God's own heart, finds a way to fight with the weapons of grace rather than simply the weapons of violence and the weapons of the world. This morning, we are going to dive into David's post-Goliath life, and it is going to be a story of friendship and love on the one hand, and a story of, oh, anxiety and being a fugitive on the other hand. Um, I'm going to read some passages from 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20 today. There's going to be a lot of Bible reading, so be warned in advance. Um, this is a day where most of the sermon is going to be simply retelling the story that's from the pages of Scripture and a relatively small amount of uh, reflection on the story. I should also offer you the disclaimer that if you go back and read these entire pa passages, um, it's notable that when folks wrote stories 3,000 years ago, they did not write newspaper accounts, okay? They did not write in ways that uh, makes our scientific uh, newspaper reporting sense satisfied in every front. Sometimes the time frames are a little bit jumbled. Sometimes the events are almost repeated. What Hebrew storytelling is always after is not scientific accuracy, but to give us the full and deep meaning of the events that happened. So if you can keep that in mind, it will make all this uh, a richer experience for you. Here's what it says in the Word of God. After David beat Goliath, from that day on, Saul, King Saul, kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. This all sounds pretty good if you're David, right? I mean, everybody loves David. King Saul keeps promoting him up the ranks. The army loves David. The military guys love David. The special ops guys love David. Everybody loves David. Except that the story is about to take a little turn. Now, if you could combine the winner of American Ninja Warrior plus the winner of American Idol, you would almost have how awesome David is in this moment. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels, tambourines and lyres, pianos and guitars. 
It's a dance party and just a party party. As they danced, they sang. My apologies to women everywhere, especially ancient Israeli women. I'm going to sing like a woman, okay? This is supposed to be bad, but here we go. <laughs> Plus, we don't know what their music sounded like 3,000 years ago, okay? But just to get it in your head that everybody was singing and dancing... Saul has slain his thousands. Pretty awesome, right? <laughs> oh, this is on the internet too, isn't it? That's bad. This is bad. <laughs> but wait, there's more. The song continues. So far, not so bad. But David, David. David has slain 10,000. It was a lot better than that. So, if you're David, this is a great song. However, if you are King Saul of Israel, the Word of God says, Saul was very angry. And this refrain displeased him greatly. Now, if you would be the voice of King Saul in yellow and be kind of disgruntled, please. They have credited David with tens of thousands, King Saul thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, did I mention that everybody loves David. <laughs> you kind of imagine David in the middle and like he's flanked by some women and I mean he's got his, even his brothers are starting to come on his side. Everybody loves this guy. Everybody but Saul, who is now working up a jealous anger, a displeasure, the Bible says, a suspicion that he is out, not just to be popular, but to snatch the reins of power from his hands. Saul is working up not only a jealousy, but a promising hatred for this young start, David. And Saul's posture can best be summarized in this succinct little phrase, Now Saul was afraid of David. Saul, the great king. Saul, who is head and shoulders taller than everyone in Israel. Saul, who holds the reins of power, is afraid of this young man, David. However, Saul's children, we come to find out, had quite different feelings about David. Saul had at least two children who are reported to love David deeply. Saul's son, Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, loved David. And Saul's daughter, Michal, we'll call her Michael, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. Here's how the story goes. After David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved David as he loved himself. 
And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off all the signs of his princehood, took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic. He even took his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now this is a love, this is a friendship made among warriors. And in this short little scene, we see the heart of true, genuine friendship, to care for another person as you care for yourself. In this little scene, there are signs of commitment, vulnerability, trust, shared feelings, and sacrifice. The Bible crams all that into this paragraph. Now, Jonathan, you need to know, is in line to be king. He has the promise of greatness. He has destiny riding on his shoulders. But he is not a regular person. He is not a man who is to be bound by his own promised success, bound by the crown. The scene tells us that however they met and hatched this friendship, Jonathan cares more about David's life and future than he cares about his own. Have you ever been around, or even better, befriended by a person with that kind of transparency and devotion and care for you? Have you ever been befriended by a person that you knew no matter what came, that because they were on your side, it was all going to be okay? We have this thing called men's fraternity, uh, kind of a Bible study, a life study at church for guys. And what I've learned, one of the things I've learned through being around uh, this many guys from our community is that if you are a guy here who can point to and say, I have a best friend or I have these two or three guys who I know are with me come hell or high water, you are a blessed man. Because in our society, most dudes are going it all alone. Statistically, ladies, you're quite a bit wiser and better than us. However, even women in America, your friendships are on a, unfortunately, uh, declining curve. This scene offers us, I think, a little sign of the way God intends life to be. That we're not just competitors. That we're not just striving to see who can get the better job, who can get the more respectable position, who can earn more cash. But that real life is found when people befriend each other and have each other's backs. Just yesterday, there was a memorial service for a woman named Darlene Lang, uh, the mother of Karen Van Proyen, a member of this church. And what I learned through that memorial service was that Darlene Lang is one of the very special people on the planet who was able to make the people that she loved feel loved down to their toes. I mean, her kids, her grandkids, the people she adopted and brought into her life, this woman had a special gift to not judge, to accept, to challenge, and just to breathe into the people in her life this friendship and confidence that she was behind them and had their back no matter what. Have you ever had a friend like that? Have you ever been a friend like that? 
God sent this man, Jonathan, into David's life. One of the things that friendship, really good friendship does, is that it says these simple words. You too? Me too. And Jonathan and David could understand each other in this way. You're a warrior? I'm a warrior. You have to deal with crazy Saul? He's my dad. I have to deal with him all the time. You're popular in Israel? I'm popular in Israel. It doesn't take much to hatch a really beautiful friendship. Just sharing those words. You too? Me too. To be an awesome friend, you don't have to share everything in life in common. You just need to find one thing that's deep and significant and start from there. When I was 19 years old, I hatched into a friendship. And uh, several months into that friendship, um, with this other young guy who was just a few years older than me, we had this experience on a very profound level. On a family level, you too, me too. On a calling to ministry level, you too. I think God might be asking me to do something ridiculous with my life too. And for the first time, both of us were able to talk to another guy about some nasty and abusive things that had happened to us when we were younger. You too? Me too. And now all these years later, I can stand in front of you and say, that friendship and some of those conversations God used to give such freedom and vision and healing. Have you ever had a friend like that? Have you ever been a friend like that? Sometimes it takes great courage to say, me too. There's an extraordinary generosity that happens in this scene. Jonathan proves himself to be one of the few people who are worthy to wear a crown because he literally is taking the future crown off his head and laying it at David's feet. He is putting himself second in line. Um, Recently, I was uh, reading about Stephen Colbert, the comedian, and uh, something he said brought me back to the scene. I don't usually think of like Hollywood people or comedians or television, you know, super famous personalities as the most humble of people or uh, generous of people, but here's what he said about uh, being a comedian and doing improv in particular. Stephen Colbert says, when I graduated from college, I moved to Chicago and started doing improv. Now, there are very few rules to improvisation. That makes sense. But one of the things I was taught early on is that as an improviser, as a comedian, you are not the most important person in the scene or in the room ever. Who's the most important person? Everyone else is. And if they are the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is, you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person and they will also serve you. No one is leading. You are all following the other followers, serving the other servants. You cannot win at comic improvisation. Isn't that great? 
Now, I would kind of think, if you've ever seen the show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, right, as people kind of one-upping each other and telling better and better jokes, but in fact, what's going on in their head is, how can I set the next person up to say something even funnier than what I say? How can I, you know, set the table so that this thing keeps going and gaining momentum? That is exactly the right posture of a genuine friend. Have you ever had one? Someone who did that for you, who was always thinking, how can I set my friend up for success? Have you ever loved someone or had so much affection that you almost obsessed about, from your strength, setting them up for success? Jonathan did it for his buddy David to the point of sacrifice. Now, true friendship and true love, if pushed far enough, always comes to sacrifice. True love will always substitute itself for the benefit of another. Substitute itself for the benefit of another. When this substituting goes on, it doesn't happen from weakness or from being a doormat. You can't sacrifice from weakness. And if someone in your life is pushing you and manipulating you and forcing you and squeezing life out of you, that is not love. That is not sacrifice. That is not substitution. But when from a position of will and from your own strength and goodness, you are able to sacrifice and substitute your well-being for that of another... That is as good as it gets on planet Earth, friends. Later, when David is uh, actually singing a song about how much he loves Jonathan and his friendship with this man, he says about him, Your love for me was better than the love of a woman. Now, 3,000 years later, that causes us to raise our eyebrows a little bit. It seems a little uh, maybe homoerotic, romantically crazy. If that were what's going on, you know, if you read the first ten books of the Bible, there's a lot of romantic craziness. The Bible is not at all afraid to write about it. What David is saying is, of all the people I have loved in my life, there has never been anybody who had my back, who had my best interest, who cared for me, who would sacrifice for me, who substituted his life for mine, than my best friend, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan had a sister who also loved David. Her name was Michael. This is what the Bible says. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Now one of the things Saul promised to the guy who beat Goliath was that, no more taxes, I will give you a great pile of money, and number three, I will give you my oldest daughter to marry. Michael was not Saul's oldest daughter. He also had a girl named Merab. And when Saul presented her to David, David said, Oh, I don't know if I'm quite ready to be the king's son-in-law yet. Thank you very much. And Saul married her off to someone else. But then Saul noticed that his daughter Michael truly was in love with David. David seemed to be reciprocating, and Saul thought to himself, Maybe I can use this little relationship to actually overthrow this guy who seems to be taking over my kingdom. So here was Saul's brilliant plan. 
They lived in the day where there was a bride price or a dowry. So Saul said to David, you can marry my second daughter, Michael, if you kill 100 Philistines and bring me some body parts. Awesome idea, right? So David does this and brings Saul the evidence. You can read all about this if you want to around your family devotion table. It's even worse than what I'm describing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. David brings double what he is uh, allotted to bring. And this does not make Saul happy. When Saul realized that the Lord was within, with David, how else could he have scored this victory over 200 Philistines? And that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy. The rest of his days. Everyone loves David. Michael loves David. Jonathan loves David. The people in the streets love David. The army loves David. Saul hates David. Quickly through the rest of the story. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken this great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul, he's looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and tell you what I find out. Now Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what, has he done? what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed Goliath the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Jonathan is putting his own life on the line right here. Saul listened to Jonathan and then took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Good for you, King Saul. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing his lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good on his escape. Now at this point, David is married to the princess Michael. He goes home to her. Saul sent men over to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, my husband, tomorrow you'll be killed. David jumps out the window. There's a crazy madcap escape. Michael covers up for him by putting a dummy into their bed, putting an animal hair wig on top of the dummy, covering it with the sheets, which buys David just a little bit of extra time because the soldiers like look into the royal bedroom and see that there is a dummy under the sheets. But then Saul discovers that Michael is in cahoots with David and says to her, Why did you, my daughter, deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escapes. And now Michael, who is caught between the husband she loves 
and Daddy Dearest, who's trying to kill her husband, she lies to him and told him, My husband said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? You catch what she does here? She's telling her dad that David threatened to murder her unless she helped him escape. And now Saul really, really, really wants to kill David. After David's escape, Jonathan and his best friend David work out a little plan. Jonathan is supposed to take a sounding of the depths of the king's heart, and then they have a little communication signal worked out with a servant and shooting arrows into a field, and David will be able to be wordlessly communicated with, no internet, 3,000 years ago, wordlessly communicated with as to whether he is safe and can come back home or whether he has to become a fugitive and keep fleeing. Jonathan is protecting his best friend to his own peril. And when he ferrets out his father's heart at dinner the next day, it is clear to him that his father will not be stopped until he holds David's head in his hands. So the next day, he sends the signal. He sends the boy out into the field, and David knows with the bow shot and with the servant that he has now lost everything. The story ends this way. After the boy had gone, the servant boy, David got up from the south side of the stone where he was hiding and bowed down before his friend Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And then they kissed each other and wept together but David wept the most. David, in this moment, is losing his home. He is losing his wife. He is losing his best friend. He is losing, least important, his position in the royal court. He is losing his whole life. And God blesses him by not letting him know what the next 10 to 15 years hold. It is going to be a nightmare for this guy. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is a witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Jonathan has been willing at every turn to sacrifice for his friend, to substitute his well-being, to save David. Jonathan will indeed trade his future crown so that David can wear it instead. Notice that they claim their friendship is not just between the two of them, but between their descendants forever. Do you know anyone who's David's descendants? who's from the house of David, from the line of David, someone who's the branch of Jesse, from the house of Jesse. Jesus Christ, the reason we are here this morning, is the true son of David, the true heir of David, the promised one, the chosen one, the Messiah. He is proud to call himself the son of David. Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Who is of the house of Saul? Who is crazy like Saul? Who is fickle like Saul? Who is prone to the occasional angry outburst like Saul? Who is at times gentle and then the next day mad and violent like Saul? Pretty much all the rest of us. Like, open a newspaper, look at yourself, remember the worst things you've done. Now, the Bible doesn't say this. This is just me reflecting for a second. If Jesus is the true son of David, the rest of us, we are all of the house and line of Saul and Jonathan. There's some great stuff about us, and there's some really lousy stuff about us. But here's the good news, friends. The friendship that was kindled between these two brothers is still going on. And the house of David has been paying back this debt of friendship ever since. If Jesus is the true son of David, for all the rest of us, he is paying back the debt of true friendship and true love. Jesus is willing to sacrifice. Jesus has substituted his own life, his own innocence, for our lousy lives. Remember how Jonathan took his royal robe and tunic and laid it on the ground in front of David? Jesus took the glory of the eternity of heaven and left it up there to become a servant like us. On the cross, Jesus even left his earthly clothes on the ground so that he could make the sacrifice complete. Jonathan took the signs of his warriorship, his sword, his bow, his strength. Jesus left his divinity, the omnipotence of God, to become a human being. A better friend no one ever had. In John 15, 15, Jesus says it very clearly. I no longer call you servants, but now I call you friends. Maybe you've had a best flesh and blood earthly friend. I hope you have. If you haven't, keep your eyes open. Pray for one. Even better yet, be one for someone else and you'll get one in return. But here's what I know for certain. In our weakness, in our loneliness, in our sin, in our violence, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, has rekindled this now 3,000-year-old friendship between the house of Saul and the house of David. And we, we, we are the eternal beneficiaries So have you ever had a friend like that? By God's grace, you can answer yes and amen this morning. And if you can't, keep praying, keep reading the scriptures, keep asking questions of God about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and I trust in good time, he will make his friendship truly and beautifully known to you. Amen. Will you pray with me? 
Lord, we thank you for your word. It doesn't whitewash or sugarcoat any part of human reality. And this morning we thank you that you have entered fully into our life and our existence to save us, body and soul, to befriend us, to transform us, to bring us to the place where we can know and love and acknowledge and praise and worship you and be together in a place that's infinitely better than this. Lord, as good as the Sunday is, as good as this summer is, as good as a Sabbath day is, we wait in bated breath for what you have prepared. And we thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us friends. And everybody said, amen. Um, one of the things we do every week in worship to respond and say thank you to God, and we have so much to say thank you for, is to offer God the first and the best of our time and talent and treasure. And uh, one, of the th- one of the things that means in terms of our finances is that uh, we tithe, we give the first 10% to the church so that this place can be a friend to the city of Elmhurst and the western suburbs and the city of Chicago so that we can do the work that Jesus wants us to do. So I invite you to be generous because God has been so generous to us. The strings are going to play a lovely song called The Gift of Love in the meantime. 